Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is me, Mark, and I'm joined today by someone else new to the channel. I've got Wayne Draper with me. We're going to have an interesting chat about his background and also some of the exciting bits of um, equipment he may have been developing. But before we get into all of that, how are you, Wayne? Yeah, great. Thanks, Mark. Um, really appreciate the time tonight to to discuss the product and, and give an insight into my, my background. So, yeah, thank you very much for that. I think it's an exciting story because um, you've kind of gone on a journey looking from the outside at what you've gone through and what's been going on that could relate to other electricians possibly following your example. So before we talk about your background and everything else, what is the product that you've actually invented? Because I'm going to class you as an inventor now. Okay, uh, that's the first time I've been called an inventor, so I'll, I'll take that. Um, it's, it's called an R1, R2 link. So the idea behind the product is to have... Um, a magnetic link that stops any um, invasive requirements during continuity testing of CBC. So it's a magnetic link to go from the terminal of, of the protective device to the MET, so you don't have to remove any conductors, basically. I've got the, the, the product here, actually, so I can show it on camera. So there's the magnetic screw tips there that would attach into the terminals, I guess, on the MCBs or the RCBOs. That's it. Crop, crop clips that would go onto the terminal bar and it avoids having to dismantle the consumer unit distribution board when you're carrying out your, your testing. So we've all been there as electricians. I definitely have. We don't want it to undo some of the terminations from inside. The yeah, that's that, that's right. I mean, on, on EICRs particularly, you know, you, you look at some boards and you're afraid to breathe on them, never mind disconnect things. And if the, the person ordering the work hasn't requested any remedials, you're, you're stuck if you do any damage. So that was... Um, one of the, the the ideas, or where the ideas stemmed from, um, but the idea mostly came from the training training world, um, okay. particularly because of the amount of damage this gets done to to, to products, to circuit breakers, RCBOs with young apprentices and so on. So, yeah, that's that's the that was the idea one of my questions it. for you actually about where the inspiration this come this come from. I wondered if you was. Um, putting together test leads like a lot of electricians have got our own homebrew kit and you stumbled upon this as a kind of idea to share out to industry but it makes a lot of sense saying it comes from a training environment because i've just started to get a little bit of experience of that here with people coming in and obviously the terminals are undone far more times than they're ever probably supposed to be and like you say it soon yeah. runs out so was this summit that you kind of um developed for just that then or was you using it out <laughs> in the field as well the, the true story was um, I was working as an electrician at the time and doing some subcontracting work for uh, training companies, basically delivering the, the 2391 inspection and testing qualification. And I had a learner one day who was an ex-professional rugby player and he did the terminal up so tight, the MCB literally just popped back. <laughs> He's not a darts player as well, is he? So, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, and I thought, there's got to be a way around this. You know, there's got to be some way of doing this um, to save the training centre uh, money, but also to make sure the equipment is up to scratch for the learners because when you're doing endpoint assessments like that, they need good quality gear to be working on. So uh, that's the way the kind of light bulb moment happened. Um, but also I was doing a lot of e EICRs myself at the time. And like I mentioned earlier, that, that fear of oh, if I touch this now, I'm going to be stuck here all day putting something back that I might not be getting paid for. So they, they came together at the same time. Um, and working in the training centre, it did give me the perfect opportunity to trial it and, and to uh, do a lot of my product test in there. So it, it came at a good time. 
Good stuff. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so when you've got to that stage and you've, you've proved the product and you've started to use it yourself, what's the step to then start selling that to other people? Because that seems like a massive void sitting here now as someone who's never sold the product anywhere. Now, do you, how do you even start bridging that? Are you making these at home on your dining table at the workshop in the college? How are you doing it? Yeah, it's um, my, my background is from manufacturing. So I do have an understanding of high volume manufacturing and how things work and um, how to get a, pros, a product from start to finish. But I've only ever done that at a large scale as a small cog in, in the machine. Um, to take ownership over something like this was really one foot into the unknown. And it, it started literally with uh, my wife, Stephanie, my, my two children, Dylan and Katie, around the kitchen table, even dragged my father-in-law in, Roy. You know, he was one of our operators. Um, if I could put gloves on the dog, he would have been there as well. <laughs> so it was just all hands on deck, make as many as, as we could, um, and then learn from each kind of batch. So they were... Uh, process improvements all the way through even down to little things with the packaging getting that right to fit into the envelopes so minimizing the cost and the postage in so it was, it was a long journey to get into um quite a well-oiled machine actually for a kitchen table <laughs> operation um we were selling quite heavy numbers and um yeah it was, it was literally all, all done at home uh, i was very very fortunate one of my good friends um is a, a tool maker press tool maker so he was able to make me a fantastic tool uh, because the whole idea, the whole concept was based around the crimp and it only worked due to the quality of, of the crimp connection. Um, so I wouldn't have been able to have done that really without some assistance, but it did allow me to have a, a high quality product where the readings were good. That was the, the fundamental um, success criteria for that product. It had to have low contact resistance, um, otherwise it would have failed straight away. So um, there was a lot of prototyping to be done to achieve that. A lot of different types of brands for the actual screwdriver bits, a lot of different types of brands for the magnets. So it took quite a few months to get to a stage where the the contact resistance was sort of 0.01 ohms um, across the terminal. I'm happy with that. That was that was great. And once we hit that, um, we ramped up production as much as we could from a kitchen table operation then. <laughs> So I guess that's the challenge, isn't it? When you start getting orders in, I mean, I assume you were selling this on, on social media to start with rather than start, started off with um, just a, quite a modest eBay shop. Um, and the numbers were, were relatively small. And then uh, one day I was on a rugby tour with, um, with some of my mates and my phone, my eBay app just absolutely exploded. I thought my phone was going to melt <laughs> um, and I, I couldn't work out what was going on. It was just sort of ping, 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 ping. And I think within 25 minutes, it was like 300 sales. And I thought, what am I going to do here? You know, I, I haven't really got this stock <laughs> sitting there yet. Um, and as it turned out, it was just a, a social media post. So I was, I think it was one of the artisan electric boys. I'd put okay. um, just a very short clip saying that they had found this product and they thought it was a good product. And that really is where the product kicked on. Um, so th that was the first real understanding for me of how influential social media is, you know, just to see that response in seconds. Um, and it grew from strength to strength there. Then I had some good supporters along the way. Um, Gary from eFix, he's, he's been fantastic. He's done a few videos on it. And you know, Gary's done it just because he was interested in the product, not for, for any other reason. He's just a, a really good guy, Gary. I think he's, 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 he's one of the, 
one of the saviors of the two biggest electrical influencers straight away you've had artisan and and Gary helping you. So that's a shot in the arm and half. You'd yeah. Well, more top table it, than those two. It really was. And it did become a product, to be honest, because satisfying the demand has, has been the issue um, because I, I work full time, obviously. My, my wife works, works full time. So we were grafting sort of 18 hours a day, you know, just to, uh, to keep on top of things seven days a week. Um, and then it was Jordan from Artisan introduced me to Malcolm Duncan from Tuberon. So that's where the relationship struck up. And uh, it needed to happen, to be honest. Somebody else needed to come on board now and, and take the product on to take it to the next level of production because my kitchen table is only so big, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that, that's the next step in your journey now. I mean, I don't know how far down the road you are with that in terms of marketing it, but you are partnering up now with Superrod. Yeah, so we, we met about 18 months ago, Malcolm and I, um, struck up a very positive relationship straight away. Um, immediately, I thought Malcolm was a guy I could trust because I was handing over my my idea, my my, my sure, baby, sure, baby really. Yeah, yeah def, definitely was. Um, but Malcolm's been fantastic from the beginning. I've been involved with um, all of the process improvements to get it to a uh, mass-produced product. So that's been great. You know, I've, I've really been uh, at the center of it with Superod. It hasn't been a case of they've taken over and, and moved me to one side. It's, it's been really, really good. Um, so we, we're at that level now, just about good to go with the launch. Uh, the products are finished. The, the, the packaging is finished. The promotional side of it now is, is um, just about kicking off, ready for a, a launch in a couple of weeks. So it's... Yeah, it, it, it needs to happen Exciting because, well, <laughs> well it, I, I haven't actually sold any myself now for um, about six weeks. Okay. So I'm, I am inundated every day with Instagram messages, um, emails, where have you gone? Where have you gone? Because um, <laughs> people are, one of the beauties of the product in terms of selling it is they're quite easy to lose, you know, so. and uh, true. Electricians yeah, are great at uh, losing stuff as well. <laughs> right, so there's a there's a planned obsolescence in in the, in the product really by by accident. <laughs> um, so I think because some people have found them so useful, when they have lost them, then they they want to replace them straight away. So that's that's been um, for six to seven weeks now. I've had to kind of put people off without being able to say I struck up a new partnership with Super Rod. We'll be on the market soon. Um, and that's so, exciting, yeah. isn't it? I mean that that must blow your mind in a way going from something you've started to put together on your kitchen table to now being partnered with what is a massive fan brand not just in the UK but further afield and now you're probably going to be stocked in wholesalers all over the country and, and who knows where the numbers in the orders will go yeah it's, it's I think for me the day I walk into a large wholesaler and the R1R2 link is, is on the rack there will be a very special day you know that that's that's something I'm really looking forward to and uh We'll definitely have a glass of wine that night to celebrate that. I wouldn't blame you at all. That's, uh, you know, it's an incredible journey to hear where you've gone from and where you're taking it to now. And I guess with um, Super Rod pushing it and all the exposure they'll get, you would expect that the sales would increase even further. I'm assuming now the manufacturing's been taken well out of your hands and is in a different place outside of your kitchen. Yeah, that's right. So the, the Super Rod have got uh, manufacturing bases in, in various countries. So um, they, they are manufacturing now on a large scale and uh, stockpiling. There's been some very interesting conversations with uh, wholesalers. The 
educational side of things is still simmering away on the back burner. Um, we've had some conversations with with Net. They're interested in um, possibly having it as a recommended product for the AM2. Um, a lot of sense. <laughs> we've had lots of colleges who want to place bulk orders. So the interest is bubbling away quite nicely now, ready, ready for the launch. No, that's great. And I guess you were saying earlier that you've kind of developed the product along the way. Have you taken in feedback from those people, you know, buying it from you? Have you ever had any input saying, have you thought about tweaking this or doing something a little bit different there? Or is it just all yeah. your own innovation? Yeah, definitely. Um, in the training centers, they, they were my guinea pigs, really. So, you know, allowing the guys to use them and taking feedback on the ergonomics of it, how easy were they to handle, how should the shape be, um, comparing the readings. So, you know, th there will be some cynical people who will say, well, you know, you're going to add a lot of contact resistance with this product. So just constantly testing that and making sure that's not an issue. Um, the fundamental element behind the design is the, the PZ2 bit, the increased surface area because of the bit. I mean, okay. a magnetic probe is not, nothing new. Magnetic yeah. probes have been on the market for a long time. But from all the trials I did um, with the range of probes that I bought, they were just adding too much resistance across the contact. So the PZ2 were perfectly because of the increased resistance of the flutes, uh, the increased surface area, sorry, of the flutes. It, uh, it helped there. Um, and the magnet keeps it in place. So there's a rare earth high strength magnet in there. So I was able to refine all of that and, and try different uh, combinations of tips with magnets and various other bits and bobs within the training center. And it was interesting discussion points with the learners as well. You know, it's uh, raising the, the point of you need reliable readings, nonlinear leads, nonlinear whatever uh, links you're going to use. So it, it led to some interesting learning for those guys as well. I can imagine. I bet it did. And, you know, where where do you see this going for you now then? Are you kind of going to be the face of the brand or are you sitting right at the back? Have you got new products you're working on? I know you've got the, the day job we're going to speak about a little bit as well. But what do you see for yourself with the inventive side of your, your career? Um, I don't know, to be honest. This, I never thought I'd have the success that I've had so far with this. So um, I, I don't think the inventing side is is gone. Um I was a school teacher for a long time teaching product design. So I've been teaching creativity and design and innovation for a long time. And I think that is a big part of me. I've always been a problem solver. So anything that I see that I don't like, I'll try and get a workaround to make it better. So um, who knows what, what the next one will be. Um, the interesting one I keep thinking about is the combinations for insulation resistance testing. If you look at guidance Note three, where they're encouraging to reduce from the traditional 10 steps to, yeah. to, to, to five. <laughs> and I keep thinking, should I make something to link the, uh, the L1, L2, L3 together? And then I keep saying no, because if somebody leaves that in, it's going to be a mess. Yeah, so, uh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the one I've been toying with. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I'm sure you've um, got a journey to go on yourself. And it just takes a natural path, doesn't it, sometimes? But we'll go right back to you at the start of your, your teaching career because you said just then you used to be a teacher in um, in a school so how did it start for you going from there into where you are now let's follow your career journey but I actually started out uh, as an electrical engineering apprentice so um, I did a I had an outstanding apprenticeship to be fair with uh, Hitachi in the um, electronic consumer products industry high volume uh, great opportunity saw the company from start to finish um, ended up well qualified. They took us to MEQ3, HNC, 
Um, it was it was great. Couldn't have asked for any more. Worked in that industry then for, for another four years or so. Um, and the bottom just fell out of it. So manufacturing along the M4 corridor in South Wales was very, very strong when I was a, a 16-year-old. By the time I was in my mid-20s, it, it had disappeared. So that was a, a bit of a wake-up call, really, of what, what should I do? Uh, should I have a career shift or should I chase the work? So my wife was a school teacher at the time and um, seemed to have a lot of holidays. <laughs> so I thought, uh, yeah, I, I could really have a go at this. So um, I was quite lucky. I managed to top up my degree as part of my engineering work. So um, I didn't have to really take on any extra training apart from the teacher training. So I uh, did that and went off to be a um, design and technology teacher then for uh, 15 years. And uh, it was great. Really, really enjoyed it. Worked with some fantastic children along the way. Um, like to think I played a, a big part, really, in, in some children moving on to engineering degrees and product design degrees and, and so on. Um, I was always a massive advocate of apprentices. So that was quite a new thought process in a lot, in a lot of schools I work because schools are academic places run by academic people who only know academic things. So I tried to uh, shake the cage of that a little bit and um, and champion the apprentices or apprenticeship route. Um, did a lot with construction in schools to to try and engage people and generate the interest with that. Um, did a lot with product design. So yeah, I did, did that for 15 years and um, came to the end of the road with that. Um, Just to touch on that again a second, you were saying about you know the construction skills and stuff. Was that something that other people were doing or was that just something you picked up with? Because one of the observations we've got on this podcast is that there's not a lot of chat in schools about construction trades and apprenticeships in general. Like you said, it's all very academic. So was that something you kind of grabbed the bull with the horns? Yeah, I did. Um, I'm from a background. My dad was a a plasterer all his life. So, you know, as soon as I was old enough to hold a shovel, um, I was on site with him all the way until he retired really and I really valued that type of work and, and that type of experience I met some really um, highly skilled people along the way and and just looked at a lot of children in school and thought well they're not really enjoying being in the academic lessons what's, what's the alternative and I moved into a head of department role quite early on um, in, in teaching so I, ha- I had some influence and I also had some budget so uh, the first school where I was head of department, we started construction for the first time and at level one. So it was appropriately targeting the, the sort of learners who we felt like would respond to that type of practical activity. No highly intensive exams at the end, all competency based and learned a lot of skills and great links with industry. And we literally had some some 16 year olds coming out to the end of that who could render to a, you know, a really good standard. Awesome. Um, they would no a limited amount of uh, a socket circuit and a lighting circuit, but enough to make you really proud that, that these youngsters had taken this on board and they were going to make some informed decisions about the next step. They were actually going to make the decision of an apprenticeship based on knowledge rather than what somebody told them. Um, so, yeah, we, we had a lot of success with, with construction. Um, really enjoyed teaching it. And so when, when you see 16-year-olds rendering to that standard that you, know, you, you could... You could put them on a site, really. Um, not all of them. Not all of them. Most of them would end oh, up on a sure. But, uh, you know, there were one or two real diamonds in there. 
and some of those went on to get apprenticeships and develop building firms and so on. So, yeah, I had a good 15 years of that um, with, with the construction side of things. But unfortunately, the, the truth of, of it all is the funding has fallen away. Mm-hmm. So I went from being a head of department with budgets of ten to £12,000, 15, 17 years ago, whatever, to daily scraping £2,000 by the time I, I finished. And it just became unmanageable, you know, trying to get the same results with no resources, with even higher levels of accountability for academic results. Um, and that is why I think the chat isn't there in schools that you're talking about. Schools yeah. are struggling for funding to run those type of courses. They're struggling to staff those type of courses because people are, um, there's a huge recruitment crisis in secondary school teaching at the moment for um, engineering teachers, design technology teachers, construction teachers, they're not coming in. And it's creating the perfect storm, really, because you know you see all of the news coverage that we want to be um, a global manufacturing giant again, and we want to be pushing green technology, and we want to be doing this. But where does it start? If, if the children are not coming through school, are being exposed to these interesting things. I mean, there's nothing more interesting in a school, in my opinion, than design technology. If you can't stimulate children with that, then you may as well send them send them home. Um, but it's massively underfunded. So I might be going off track a little bit here, but uh, no, that, that's, that's the reality of it. I like it. We're such we're very tunnel vision as electricians, I think, and we don't often understand some of the wider problems out there filtering into industry, and that's right at the gates of you know young people coming into the trade, and you know they've not got the funding in their school environment to kind of get the direction that we would want and expect. Like you did a great thing with the, the rendering students and other construction where you were trying to do that in a very you know, limited capacity on your own, if you like, in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, we want to see more attention and focus on teachers and careers advisors pointing people at apprenticeships and giving them a taste of it in a school environment. But such a good point. There's not the funding there to do it. I'm sure there's a lot of other teachers who would love to do things like that. And we just can't afford it. It's the harsh reality, isn't it? Yeah, we, we went through a complex picture in Wales for quite a while with regards to how success in schools was measured. And if a course like Level 1 construction didn't add any points to the school's overall performance, why would they run them? So that's that's another reason, you know, and, and that comes back to my fears that schools are very academic places run by academic people who only understand the academic route. So it, it's difficult really to just pinpoint one reason why the chat isn't there. There's there's multiple, multiple reasons, but it doesn't seem to be getting any better. I think it's it's actually much worse now than when I joined uh, 20 years ago, whatever it was. I'd, I'd agree based on what I'm seeing this end through Apprentice one-to-one's eyes, that that's the case. And like you said, there's a lot of talk out in the media about doing more for skills and levelling up and all the rest of it. But when you see the meat behind the burns, there's not... It's not there, is it, at a policy level yep. from government? And that's that's where the driving force behind all of this needs to come from. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one to solve there. But after you moved on from from that, um, where did you take your path next? You say you ran out so of I, I, you're looking for something new. Yeah, so uh, I came to the end um, of, of teaching, uh, school teaching. So I went back on the tools then, started up um, just a, a small one-man band electrical company, did a few years of that, really enjoyed that. Um, then fell back into teaching with uh, training centres. So I was approached one day by a, by a guy who said, um, you've also got a teaching background. Would you like to teach uh, some, some electrical work? And I uh, did that. And 
hit it off straight away. Really, really enjoyed that working with mature learners, which I hadn't done before. Um, guys who are you know paying a lot of money to be there, so they, they're hanging on your every word as a captive audience. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's nice to see them achieving and, and coming out the end that you've added some value. So did a little bit of that, juggled the two together. So the the electrical installation and the uh the training. And that then led to uh, COVID came then. Everything sort of went up in the air for, for a little while. <laughs> apart from apart from hot tubs in summer houses. I did plenty of those um during COVID. I think that was most of the work I did for, for that period. Um and then I was approached by a college. So that's how I kind of ended up where I am at the moment now with, with the college. I've been part-time still on the tools and part-time with the college. Uh, but it's that became a bit unmanageable. That was that was really difficult trying to do that. So from September, I've been full time with the college now, and I think I think I've finally found somewhere I might settle. So, oh cool, no, that's great. And and teaching is in desperate need of good lecturers as well. You were talking about you know schools struggling to att- attract teachers. I think there's a bit of a crisis in in trades recruitment for lecturers as well. So the fact someone like yourself who has been out active in industry and you've got a much wider engineering background and you're a qualified teacher, you know, they're the people we want in classrooms. So full credit to you. It's, it's been great to be honest, because I think you, you just touched on it there with the currency. It's been really good with the learners to be able to say, I was doing this last week or I was doing this, you know, yesterday, or this is the problem I had. These are the photographs I've got. What would you have done in this situation? And, and it has opened up some really good discussions some really good learning uh, and that's something I, I am quite conscious. I don't want to lose. So even though I'm saying that I'm going to uh, pursue this full time, is how can I keep my foot in and still keep that currency, you know? So that's that's something i got to consider, something to think about. I have those conversations with a lot of lecturers. Craig, who's another host on this podcast, he has the same problem. I mean, it's not such a big deal for him now because he's gone back into industry. But while he was lecturing, I know he used to take a couple of days out here and there to go and work with contractors and just get a bit of experience to keep his hand in and stay current but yeah it's, it's one of those where you've, you've got to be in teaching I still think there's a bit of a stigma towards people who teach as lecturers and I don't understand that it's like you know what, what's the saying if you can't do it you teach or whatever the really offensive phrase is but I think that you know you should be proud of that there is nothing wrong with going into teaching and sometimes being an expert in that profession is exactly what we need and you can stay current in other ways you don't have to go out to site and still do the job yeah, it's, it's, it's blending the two together because um, you, you could have the best subject knowledge in the world, but you could be a terrible teacher. And then you could be a terrible teacher and, uh, sorry, have the, the be the best teacher and have the, the terrible subject knowledge. It's, it's trying to find that blend across the two because I think ultimately being able to teach is, is the number one priority. Um, there's an awful lot to teaching in terms of the pedagogy and, and the assessment and all the, the rest of it that makes education what it is. So that's not something I think you can just fall into. Um, there's a lot of training needed to become a teacher. So it, it is finding that blend. And I think that's sometimes where it does fall short because a lot of people are either one or the other. Yes. Um, and it is quite difficult to, to get that mix. And the recruitment issue in the colleges, now we talk about recruitment in schools, the, the current recruitment issue in colleges is very real. Um, my, my LinkedIn profile literally brings three times a day with recruitment agencies for colleges, training centers, and all for electrical installation lecturers. It uh, is it's a real, real issue. It seems to be. I mean, there's a lot of students who were in touch with us saying their lecturers are changing almost 
on repeat month to month because they're using a lot of agency um, teachers. And, you know, it's a, it's a tricky one. Again, it probably all boils back down into funding, doesn't it? I think it needs to be a big... Usually does. That. Yeah, and I know from the apprenticeship standard that's just been reviewed, so that's going through now. I think there is a slight increase in the funding there per student. So that's maybe something that's positive and will, will help. So what's your, what's your kind of views on the electrical apprenticeship? We'll, we'll leave aside the, the regs courses and the mature learning. You know, what's um, your current foresight on the domestic electrician apprenticeship that's coming out? Um, this is a very hot topic, isn't it? I know uh, <laughs> it you're, either, you're either sitting on one side of the fence or the other. Um, for me personally, I've seen enough of the electrical industry to know how wide it is. And for all these people to say I'm a I'm a fully competent or fully um, full scope electrician, I would never call myself a full scope electrician or full scope electrical engineer because I don't have a command over every aspect of the electrical industry. It's I think it's physically impossible for anybody to do that. Um, with regards to the domestic, I think it's a good thing if it's if it's run well. With regards to the introduction of all the new green technologies, I mean that's a specialist field in itself. So we need to appreciate that we need a generation of people coming through now um, who can who can do that work. I was talking to a friend of mine last night who's an electrician about the increase in fires with solar uh, installations and various other things. You know, th these are very real issues. Uh, so we need to make sure we've got competent people coming through. And I think there's enough scope in the new domestic apprenticeship to, to justify its need. Um, I understand some some people's resistance to it, but I just think that we can't hope to cover all of the industry. I mean, if you look to the traditional apprenticeship, you might have some people who will spend hours and hours and hours learning about containment, and they'll never touch it when they qualify, but they they can't test. You know, so it's how do you tick all of those boxes with the the limited time that you've got, and and that's another issue is apprenticeships have been condensed and condensed and condensed for various reasons so it's um it's going to take some good people to sort this out and, and get an apprenticeship uh i was going to say this fit for all but i don't think you can have one that's fit for all anymore because the industry is just branching off in so many different ways it's changing such a lot at the minute we're going on that journey now doing solar systems ourselves and like you just said you you really don't know everything in this industry. I've been on a huge, huge deep dive learning journey with solar and batteries and all of the good stuff around that. Like you said, the fires that are caused and the differences in the way that the DC works. You know, it's a massive learning journey. You can't expect to cram all of that into everybody at an apprenticeship stage and put them out and say, you know, you're good to go. It's a, it's a solid base camp, I think, isn't it? You need that rounded understanding and place to build out from after that. And I think the domestic electrician does that as long as the the gateway to then bridge that gap to full scope is well held. So if you want to do the bridging modules to then be a full-on qualified electrician or whatever we're going to call it, that, that does take a year. It does include all the modules and it kind of maps correctly. And I think they also maybe got the name wrong. They should have just called it a renewables apprenticeship. Take the word domestic out. I think that's just triggered so many people. I think there's, just... there's, there's too many links to the, the, the old domestic exactly installer that. type courses, you know, the exactly short courses that. and and various other things, definitely. Um, but it's it, it is something that, I don't know, some people uh, like to shout about things for a lot of their own exposure. Um, if everybody gets from the table and actually irons this out, I mean, we, we've got a huge, not a huge problem. I'm sure the Welsh government see it as a success, but we have a totally different qualification structure in Wales to England. 
which I find incredible. You know, we're on the same tiny island with <laughs> learners who can shake hands over a border and we'll have complicated apprenticeship frameworks now, which if you started training in Wales and, and then move over to England, where does that leave you? So it's, um, yeah, there's, it just it needs to come together and look at the whole picture. We spoke about that before we started recording and I mentioned about the same with Scotland and Northern Ireland and I see that in Apprentice one to one because I've got learners from all over with their problems getting in touch and obviously I'm specific to England. I know what our yeah. rules are here and how it works but it's different with a FICA test up in Scotland and how that works with Select and then Northern Ireland worked to a similar system I think to Wales but also mixed in a bit with what England do. And it's the same with the building regs as well, isn't it? You made another point about that before we started working, uh, recording this, that you know, there's not that joined up thinking as a United Kingdom, is there really? When, when you think you can, you can drive from the south of England to the north of Scotland in, in one complete day, um, and we can't all have the same rules, it's, uh, it, yeah. <laughs> it must be difficult for people who are in teaching as well to, you know, you often move around and start teaching a course. And if you're an electrical lecturer in Wales and you're, taking a role in Scotland or England, there's differences there. Yeah, it doesn't make sense really, does it? No, it's if, if I teach a building regs course or a 2391 course, I, you know, I have to discuss the difference in, in the different areas and, and help people because where, where I am in South Wales, we do get learners from Bristol over the bridge, you know, so, um, or we get learners from uh, sort of middle of England, Gloucester and so on. So we get the full spread. So we do have to make sure that everything's covered for, for both sides of the bridge. And it just adds another layer of complexity um, that we could we could do without really. It's from the more cost as well, isn't it? I guess as well from. And it's another set of books, you know. When, when well, when you're talking about the the regulations, the building regulations, it's, it's a complete new set of documents. It's a complete new bunch of people who are going to manage those documents. It's just layer upon layer upon layer. It's crazy, isn't it? And it, it you know, it's, it must be frustrating as hell when you're you're trying to set up and do things in the right way, and you're kind of bogged down by stuff like that. So you know. Full credit to you. I think that lecturers and colleges don't get bigged up enough. There is a lot of focus on the, the rogues that are out there. We have these campaigns about rogue trainers. It's much needed. But I think we're losing a bit of the spotlight from what's really important, getting behind the lecturers and college out there who genuinely want to do good things. And they just need a bit of investment in time and money. That can be from a government level, but also employers getting involved with training centers and trying to build those links going in and speaking to the lecturers and the students, providing bits and pieces in terms of materials, give what you can, um, and try and have a positive impact as a community of electrical engineers, I guess. Yeah, I think that's that's the, the key word there, isn't it? It's community that we're all fighting for the same goal. We all want well-qualified people in the electrical industry. Um, so if you could strip away some of the layers and have a bit, a bit more common sense, I'm sure it'd be easier to get to that end goal. Um, it's it's quite difficult in Wales at the moment now because we're in a transition from the old qualifications into the new qualifications. So for us, things like the uh, traditional two, three, six, five courses um, kind of haven't got a place any longer. And, and that is difficult for the guys who've got that qualification, you know, and how do they fit into the new apprenticeship framework? And so it's just, yes, yeah, very up in the air at the moment. Very up in the air. Yes, and we've got that in England. I'm I'm helping EAL develop the new standard to replace what is the 2365. I know City and Guild's going through the same process because the funding for it's been removed from September. Yeah. So we need yeah. new replacements in place for then. And as you rightly say, when these new numbers get applied to those courses and they are funded, 
is that going to make people who've attained the prior qualifications seem less attractive to an employer? And yes, we're in times with stuff like that. I totally get it. Um, there's a lot going on, isn't there, in, in training at the minute, and um, we need to keep on top of it. It's difficult to keep on top of it. It's difficult to keep up with the changes um, and, and how the changes are communicated. You know, it's uh, you, you have to constantly be checking exam board websites for us in Wales, the Skills Wales website. I mean, you know, we could we've had assessments planned and the assessment criteria has changed on the day that we were about to run the assessment somebody will say oh we better check the website now to make sure we're up to date <laughs> and you look at it and think oh no it's not exactly the same so yeah it's going to take a bit of time for the new qualifications to bed down um they, they're quite good to be honest I, I do quite like some of some of the aspects of them what they've tried to do in wales is, is streamline um things so that the full-time college learners can slot into apprenticeships easier without too much disruption if they get an apprenticeship a little bit later on um, because that that has that has been difficult for for people you know if they may have done two years of full time and then have to go back and start right at the beginning of year one of an apprenticeship when they could be parachuted in a bit later on along yeah, the journey the RPL in over between the two wasn't quite right in England oh it wasn't I think that's one of the things that they are trying to get ironed out in this update here and it's much needed because, you know, you don't want to be starting again if you've already covered off a lot of the theoretical units, do you? It makes yeah. absolutely no sense. Yeah, no, that's right. So, I mean, uh, in terms of that, I think it's much needed. We'll, we'll see how that, that develops here. Hopefully we follow the path laid out over in Wales if you guys and girls are already on with that there. Yeah, it's um, there's, there's some good people involved. Um, EAL, we've met the uh, EQA for this year already and... Uh, very good very forward thinking uh lots of support and and that's what's needed is, is everybody needs to support each other during transition um what we don't want is people pulling away from each other and, and making it harder for these things to bed in um so yeah the exam boards have been good sitting guilds have been great with some of their resources as well uh, and that's starting to get better um as we move forward so yeah there, there are some good things happening in wales there, there are um but it's it's right at the infancy at the moment so we, we watch your space it's fantastic is there anything else you want to mention on this podcast before we draw it to a close? I'm going to ask you one more question in a second, but I wonder if there's anything else you want to cover in specific? Um, no, no, I think we've we've, we've covered everything. That, I think we've uh, gone over some good questions, yeah, though, yeah, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> it's been a good overview of your background and also, also the product, but I just wondered how you would kind of advise people who've maybe come up with an invention themselves. We've all got these box of kits and bits of adapters and stuff we've made so if you've come up with a great idea yourself you might be an electrician listening to this thinking i could never market that no one else is going to buy it how the hell would i even make it on mass you know what kind of tips would you give those guys or girls uh you need to sweet talk your family as much as possible to uh to, to sit around that kitchen table with you um i used to buy my father-in-law roy fish and chips after this after a shift on a saturday so that was uh that was well received but no i, I think it's um just having a logical thought process and um, product design is an iterative process. It's, you're not going to get it right straight away. You need to be prepared for the failures along the way and uh, and accept that the things are not going to happen straight away. You know, it's a refining process. And the biggest thing is to just ignore the the people, the negative energy. The people will say, you know, try and knock your product. Why is that needed? Um, that's a waste of money or it, it doesn't conform with this or that or, you know if you've got faith in it and you've proved that it works just just go for it top tip i like it so persevere and accept and learn from the mistakes that's great 
And if anybody is wanting to get their hands on one of these, I assume that the launch is, is imminent. Now, is this going to be direct to SuperVOD through the wholesale network? Where can people go and get it's, themselves it's, one of these? It's going to go through the the, the, the wholesale network, basically. So uh, SuperVOD are going to be selling this through their partnerships with people like CEF and, and other wholesalers. So that's going to be the first route and uh, see where it goes from there then. Fantastic. I'll drop a link in the description to this video and podcast for anyone who wants to go off and check the, the product out and find better information on where to buy it. It'll all be in there. I'll also drop links over to um, Will's, Win, Will's Win's social media platforms if he has them and he wants to tag them into the post. And if you've got any questions around this podcast, as always, please do drop them in below. I'll try and get back to everybody. And until the next time, we'll see you again. Thanks for coming on, Wayne. Thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate it.